3: to inform you the rejection podcast in hindsight it seemed like a terrible idea for a tv show a 50 year old dying of cancer cooking crystal meth vince gilligan <laughs> One day, in the spring of 1985, a letter came in the mail addressed to one Vince Gilligan. It was from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. Eight years earlier, he'd seen Star Wars for the first time, and promised himself that day that his future would hinge on three things—directing, writing, and building spaceships. After nearly a decade forcing his younger brother to appear in short films on his Super 8 camera in their mother's basement, Gilligan had applied to the school's film and production program to see if he could turn his teenage dream into an adult career. And to his amazement, he got in on a partial scholarship. And the boy from Farmville, Virginia, a town of 6,000, was off to New York City. Population... Eight million. Over the next four years, he'd study the history of cinema, film criticism, production, animation, documentary, directing, and screenwriting, where he really flourished. His teachers said he was a walking, talking juxtaposition. In the classroom, he was a polite kid, sort of kept to himself. But on the pages of his scripts lived dark, bent, violent characters. So much so that one teacher had him pegged as the go-postal type. But one thing was for sure. Attendance was unusually high on days when Gilligan read his scenes aloud to the class. After graduating from NYU in 1989, Gilligan entered one of his scripts into the Virginia Screenwriting Competition put on by the state's film festival. Part of the judging process involved sending finalist scripts to working professionals in the industry, and Gilligan's was sent to one of the producers of the 1988 hit blockbuster, Rain Man. Gilligan won first prize, and that producer was so impressed with his work, he connected him with a Hollywood agent. Gilligan had written several screenplays in his time at university, and with his new agent's help, he started pitching them to studios. One was called Home Fries. It was a black comedy about a pregnant fast-food drive through clerk who unknowingly falls in love with the stepson of her baby's deceased father. Another was called Wilder Napalm. It told the story of two brothers who share a secret power of starting fires with their minds. Both screenplays got picked up by major studios and made into motion pictures. Home Fries would star Drew Barrymore, Luke Wilson, and Catherine O'Hara. Wilder Napalm would star Deborah Winger and Dennis Quaid. The films achieved modest success, but by rookie screenwriter standards, Gilligan hit it out of the park, twice. The beginnings of a promising career light years ahead of his fellow Tisch graduates. Suddenly, he found himself in a very comfortable position. The 25-year-old moved back to Virginia and bought himself his very first house. And it was from his brand-new home office that he continued pitching ideas across the country to Hollywood executives. But a year went by, and he hadn't sold another script. Then, a second year. And by 1994, three years had passed of pure rejection. Gilligan ran out of money, and his Writers Guild health insurance lapsed. In the mid-90s, Gilligan was but one of thousands of struggling Hollywood writers. He was consistently told his ideas weren't what studios were looking for. So he started writing scripts he thought executives wanted to see, stories he maybe wasn't particularly passionate about, but based on tropes he was noticing in the current cultural sphere. But he was rejected, again and again and again. Then one day, in 1995, he got a call from his agent. She booked Gilligan a meeting with the creator of The X-Files. X-Files was a science fiction television series about FBI agents who solve inexplicable paranormal cases. By 1995, the show was in its second season, bringing in an average of 15 million viewers per week. When Gilligan first heard of the show in 1993, he says he didn't have high hopes for it. But one night, alone at his home in Virginia, he was flipping channels, and he happened to come across an episode. And Gilligan was instantly hooked. However, when his agent called him about meeting with the series' showrunner, he was hesitant. Gilligan had gone to film school— He'd successfully sold two film scripts, and he spent his days coming up with fresh film ideas. Basically, he was a movie guy. TV people were a whole other breed. But his agent insisted. She said, why don't you just go say hi and tell him how much you love the show? So Gilligan flew to the West Coast, and he went into the meeting very relaxed. For the first time in his professional career, the pressure was off. He was there to gush. And nothing more. The X-Files showrunner was a man named Chris Carter. Gilligan shook his hand before telling him what an extraordinary show he'd created. Carter thanked him, then asked if he had any ideas for an episode. Gilligan said gosh no. But come to think of it, he had a strange thought in his hotel room last night. In the glow of the lamplight, he noticed his shadow cast against the wall, and he thought, wouldn't it be weird if his shadow started moving about independently? Carter said, yeah, that would be creepy. And with those five words, the pair launched into a fascinating conversation about dark, bent, and violent characters. They massaged Gilligan's idea, and season two, episode 23 of The X-Files, became an episode called Soft Light, about a physicist's murderous shadow, which Gilligan wrote, Freelance. It was the first time his name had ever appeared on a television project, and it felt amazing. Pitching films meant slaving away over ideas, lobbing them to studios likely to never hear a peep. Or, if you're lucky, selling a script, but it never seeing the light of day. But in television, his off-the-cuff idea hit the airwaves in a matter of weeks. It was a rush. Shortly afterward, Carter asked Gilligan to join the writing staff full-time. It was an easy yes. But while he appreciated the quick turnaround time of TV, that fact also made it a notoriously tough gig. He figured he'd probably be fired, quick. So he moved 3,000 miles across the country to Los Angeles, but he kept his home in Virginia, just in case. Gillian says, like Kramer on Seinfeld, he accidentally stumbled into the best thing that ever happened to him. Over the next seven years, he wrote for The X-Files. He says it was the perfect job. Carter empowered the writing staff to take responsibility for their own episodes, to participate in casting sessions, fly to Vancouver where the show was shot, help the director advocate for the vision of the script, and be available to the actors and crew members. Then, sit for hours in the editing room. Gilligan says it was expected that he shepherd each of his episodes all the way from pre to post-production. What Carter was doing was showing Gilligan how to be a producer, to be 100% invested in each and every episode. It was like the world's most hands-on film school. And eventually, Gilligan became a formal producer on the series. He wrote 30 episodes and produced 127. He sold his house in Virginia to fund the down payment on a new home in L.A. Then, in 2002... The X-Files was canceled. Overnight, Vince Gilligan was unemployed, back to pitching scripts and crossing his fingers. For a second time in his career, he was a working writer without work. So together with Chris Carter and a couple other X-Files expats, Gilligan put together a spinoff It would be called The Lone Gunman. Think less paranormal activity, more secret government lab. Fox picked up the series, but after just 13 episodes, ratings plummeted. One season in, The Lone Gunman was pulled off the air. It didn't seem to matter that the creators had just come off a major hit television series. They were back to square one. Gilligan started pitching a police drama he wrote called Battle Creek. It got a little interest from Sony, but ultimately, it was a non-starter. Before parting ways, Sony execs told Gilligan they liked his style, and if he ever came up with another TV idea, they said they'd be happy to read it. But a year passed, then two years passed, then three long years passed since X-Files ended. He may have been in a slightly better financial state than his first drought in the 90s, but this was one of the darkest periods in his life. One particularly bleak evening, he and one of his fellow X-Files writers were, quote, complaining to one another on the phone when Gilligan said, They should probably just switch professions. How many people are fortunate enough to work for one hit television show, let alone two? Maybe they should just become greeters at Walmart or dig ditches or maybe drop off an application at their local H&R block. Then his colleague said, maybe they should just pool what's left of their money and buy an RV and cook meth in the back. Gilligan laughed. Then he paused. Hmm. With his colleague still on the line... Gilligan started fleshing out the idea. Why would a man decide to start cooking meth? Maybe to help his family. Why would he need to help his family? To make money before he dies. Why is he dying? He has cancer. That was it. Gilligan says it was a rare eureka moment. At this point, Gilligan had just turned 40 years old. And he says he was growing increasingly familiar with the term midlife crisis. So he thought, what if this character was having the world's worst midlife crisis? But come to learn, he isn't midlife at all. He's right at the tail end of his time on Earth. He loved the concept of a straight arrow guy who's never broken the law in any serious way in his life, doing something bad. And the most reprehensible thing Gilligan could think of was cooking and selling crystal meth, one of the most addictive and dangerous drugs out there. The protagonist would be a mild-mannered small-town chemistry teacher by day and car wash attendant by night named Walter White, who discovers one fateful afternoon he has stage 3 lung cancer. In order to secure a nest egg for his pregnant wife and son after he dies, he enlists the help of one of his former underachieving students and local drug dealer named Jesse Pinkman. Pinkman knows the business. Walter White knows the chemistry. And together, they turn a Winnebago into a meth lab on wheels. It was the world's most ill-advised get-rich-quick scheme. But here's the twist. While at first Walter White is the protagonist, it doesn't take long for the obstacles in his path to financial freedom to disappear, turning Mr. White from a husband and father driven by desperation into New Mexico's foremost drug kingpin, driven by power. The protagonist becomes the antagonist. The elevator pitch? Let's take Mr. Chips and turn him into Scarface. He'd call it Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad is a Southern colloquialism, meaning go wild, a term that was very common in Gilligan's home state. He says he was so wild about the idea, so passionate, that he didn't stop to second-guess himself. Instead, he picked up the phone to call up Sony Television. Taking them up on their offer to read his latest ideas, and he set up a meeting. Gilligan says as he stood there pitching his idea, he watched the executives' eyes widen, and it hit him for the first time. No one would ever put this show on television. One Sony suit later said in front of them was a man talking about a character who had no joy in his life, no interests, living a very mundane existence. Oh yeah, then he gets cancer. The exec actually found himself looking around the room for hidden cameras. So Gilligan started talking in more broad, thematic terms. At its heart, the series was about the types of life-changing moments that drive ordinary people into desperation, and Gilligan knew what it felt like to be desperate. When he wrapped his pitch, the Sony team shook his hand, and Gilligan went home, knowing full well it was a total waste of time. But the next morning, the phone rang. It was Sony. They said, let's try and find a buyer for your crazy idea. that thought we'll be right back
2: imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Now, Breaking Bad had a studio, which is responsible for production. What they needed next was a network to get their show on the air. So together with Sony and his agent, Gilligan booked some meetings around town. He honed what's called his pilot pitch, practicing in the mirror and making sure to follow the cardinal rules of any Hollywood spiel. Maintain eye contact, exude boundless enthusiasm, and never, ever refer to your notes. And with that, they walked into their first meeting with the president of Showtime. Showtime had a reputation for, quote, quirky but quality dramas. Californication and The Tudors were premiering that year. Dexter had just come out the year before. Quirky was certainly one word you could use to describe Breaking Bad. So Gilligan began his pitch. But a few minutes in, the president interjected and said, This sounds a lot like weeds. Weeds was a current Showtime series starring Mary Louise Parker that told the story of a widowed mother of two who begins selling marijuana to support her family. It had premiered the year before, but somehow Gilligan hadn't heard of it. He felt the blood drain from his face, so he decided to fake it. Gilligan pretended he was familiar with the series and began fumbling through an argument that the two characters were fundamentally different. Apples and oranges. But the president wasn't convinced, and Showtime rejected Breaking Bad. Gilligan said, frankly, had he known about weeds, he might not have moved forward with his idea altogether. The next meeting was with TNT. Once again, Gilligan stood up in front of a couch full of suits and began his presentation. As he told the story of the unlikely duo of Mr. White and Jesse Pinkman, he noticed the executives inching toward the edge of their seats. He explained the opening scene where a meth lab on wheels comes barreling through the New Mexico desert and Walter White stumbles out the door wearing nothing but tighty-whities and a gas mask. And they'd ask, then what happened? He walked them through the fateful doctor's appointment where White learns of his diagnosis. And they said, what happens next? So he told them of White's plans to protect his family, which simultaneously put them all in grave danger. The executives listened with such bated breath. Gilligan says it was the single best meeting of his, at that point, 15-year career. They were giddy. As he wrapped his 30-minute pitch, he sat back down feeling so good about himself. The executives looked at each other, then looked back at Gilligan and said, If we bought this idea, we'd be fired. The TNT executives told Gilligan they wished they could buy his idea, but that they had to reject it right then and there. There was no way a television show about crystal meth would ever make it through the litany of executives and censors at a network. Gilligan says in all the meetings he's ever taken, all the scripts he's ever pitched, all the suits he'd poured his heart out in front of, he's never experienced the fabled buy-it-in-the-room moment when someone says, I'll take it, after a pitch, and the deal is done. But he says a close second to the victory of someone actually purchasing your idea is an instant rejection. It sounds like a bad thing. But Gilligan says the trouble in Hollywood is that often you'll pitch an idea and you won't hear back for weeks, maybe months, leaving you dangling on the end of a meat hook. The folks at TNT kept it quick and semi-painless. Gilligan thanked them for their decisiveness, but as he got up to leave, the executives stopped him. They said, We just have to ask, is there any way the characters could be dealing in counterfeit money instead? but it wouldn't be the same, and Gilligan walked out the door. He was 0 for 2, but the enthusiasm for the story in the TNT office pushed him to line up another meeting for the very next morning, this time at HBO. When it came down to it, HBO was probably Gilligan's first choice for a network. Home of The Sopranos and Six Feet Under, HBO is widely credited with ushering in the golden age of television. By late 2006, The Wire was nearing its final season, and the network seemed like a natural fit for a crime drama like Breaking Bad. Sony, Gilligan, and his agent walked into the room with three HBO executives and Gilligan guided them through the pilot pitch in great detail. But he says the execs could not have been less interested in what he had to say, not even just about Breaking Bad, but about whether or not he lived or died. He says the room filled with a toxic gamma radiation of disinterest, checking their watches with blank expressions. When he wrapped his pitch, the lead executive sighed and half-heartedly thanked them for coming in. Afterward, neither Sony nor Gilligan's agent could get a call back from HBO. In a single day, he'd gone from the best meeting of his career to the worst. By this point, he'd been rejected by three major studios, Showtime, TNT, and HBO, arguably the three most logical homes for his series. But Gilligan booked one last meeting, this time at FX. And what happened next, he could not believe. Following their meeting with FX, life-changing news made its way onto Gilligan's BlackBerry. FX bought Breaking Bad. Gilligan says it was nothing short of a miracle. A network bought a story with a hero who's a meth cook. He was eternally grateful to the executives for getting behind his idea, and he excitedly dove into writing the full pilot script. Soon, Gilligan delivered Episode 1 to the network. But shortly afterward, the chairman of FX called him in for a meeting. He told Gilligan they already had three dramas with male anti-heroes: Nip Tuck, Rescue Me, and The Shield. When he read Gilligan's pilot, it occurred to him that Walter White would be the fourth, cementing their reputation as the male anti-hero network. As much as Breaking Bad was a wonderful script, they needed more female protagonists on their roster. Basically, Breaking Bad was too on-brand for the company. So they picked up Dirt, starring Courtney Cox, and Damages, starring Glenn Close, instead. It was Gilligan's fourth rejection. He said at that point, his show was dead as a hammer. The pilot script, no doubt, dropped into a filing cabinet somewhere, gathering dust. Little did he know, across town at a West LA eatery, his agent was invited to a very interesting meeting. Across a table of John O'Groat's famous fried chicken, the brand new director of programming for AMC sat Gilligan's agent down to bend his ear. AMC stands for the American Movie Classics. And at that time, it was just that, Movies, a 24-hour basic cable movie channel. AMC's president said their slogan was essentially stop by when you want and we'll have a movie for you. But when HBO, FX, and Showtime ushered in a brand new era of prestige original content, AMC fell behind. And suddenly, when it came time to renegotiate its deal with cable providers, the company found themselves without a bargaining chip. They needed a rebrand. They needed original programming. AMC already had one original show in pre-production — a period piece made up of an entirely unknown cast called Mad Men. But if they wanted to call themselves a true network, they needed more. So they started setting up meetings around town. Gilligan's agent told AMC's director he had the perfect television show in mind. It was called Breaking Bad, the story of a terminally ill meth-cooking teacher. Amazingly, AMC was intrigued, and they invited Gilligan for a drink at a Beverly Hills hotel to discuss the possibility. When Gilligan heard the news, he couldn't believe a movie channel was interested in his television show. He said to his agent, Did you sell it to a food network, too? It is a show about cooking, after all. He thought the meeting would be yet another dead end. But he figured at least he'd get a good $14 scotch out of it so he made his way to the hotel bar. As Gilligan sipped his scotch, he listened while the AMC executive explained their rebranding plans. And he said it felt akin to someone saying they were going to build a base on the moon. But Gilligan grossly underestimated AMC's plans to pivot toward television on television. Because right then and there, they made him an offer. To make Breaking Bad their second original series. A show about drugs was a risk for many reasons. Chief among them, AMC was an ad-supported network. It might be difficult to get advertisers on board. But they were committed to premium content, and Gilligan's script was as high quality as it comes. These were the words Gilligan had longed to hear. There was only one problem. FX still owned the rights. Gilligan says what essentially happens is studios pay a pittance for a script. Then, if they don't end up using it, they tuck it away. That way, they don't risk it going to another studio and getting made, or horror of horrors becoming a hit so it's essentially held hostage but amc approached fx and asked to purchase the rights to their unusable script and by some miracle fx accepted something gilligan says never happens in hollywood suddenly breaking bad had a home on american movie classics it wasn't exactly what gilligan had envisioned But they had a studio, they had a pilot, and they had a network. Vince Gilligan was officially a showrunner. The next step was casting. There were two central characters in Breaking Bad, Walter White and Jesse Pinkman. AMC wanted a big name for Walter White, So they approached John Cusack and Matthew Broderick, but both rejected the role, which you'd think would be a disappointment. But Gilligan knew exactly who he wanted. Mr. White was a sympathetic, borderline pitiable character, a man frequently humiliated by his own students, barely making ends meet, and sleepwalking through life in beige pants. Gilligan named him White, Purposefully, because he was so vanilla. But yet, as he breaks bad, he becomes deplorable. He's a murderer, a drug dealer, who transforms into a chilling and dangerous alter ego known as Heisenberg. Gilligan needed an actor who could straddle both worlds, and most importantly, one who could remain sympathetic and innately human, even while performing unconscionable acts. And there was only one man he knew who could take on such a task. Almost ten years earlier, Gilligan was casting an episode of The X-Files he'd written for season six. The episode was called Drive, and it featured a unique character. One who, like Walter White, was multifaceted. On one hand, he was dying, which evoked sympathy. On the other hand, he was, to quote Gilligan, kind of a creep. Every actor that came in to audition was great at depicting the character's creepy side, but when it came to his sympathetic side, it wasn't coming through. Then, in walked an actor who blew them all away. His name was Brian Cranston. In 1998, Cranston was 42 years old, and he had yet to land a role of substance. Apart from a short stint on Seinfeld and a Preparation H commercial, his resume was nothing to write home about. He'd faced years of rejection at the cold hands of Hollywood, waiting for his big break and stuck in background roles like Angry Mob Member or Drunken Frat Boy or Reckless Driver, hoping, praying for a part with an actual name. But that day, in the X-Files casting room, Cranston put on an incredible performance that left an indelible impression on Gilligan. He straddled that line between human and monster impeccably. He was cast as character Patrick Crumb, and Drive would go on to make TV Guide's list of best X-File episodes of all time. Two years later, Cranston would land his long-awaited big break as the role of goofy dad Hal Wilkerson on the Fox hit series, Malcolm in the Middle. Over the next seven years, Cranston would earn three Emmy nominations for his role in the series. But by 2006, rumors started swirling that Fox was canceling the show. They kept the sets up just in case season eight was greenlit. But by spring of that year, It was official. Malcolm in the Middle had reached its end. Right away, Cranston was offered two more pilots to play another goofy dad, but he turned them down immediately for fear of being pigeonholed. He was ready for something else, something completely different, something three dimensional. And that very month, he got a call from Vince Gilligan. Cranston read the script for Breaking Bad and thought it was phenomenal. He came in to audition, but the executives at AMC said, Wait, wait, wait. You want to hire Malcolm's dad as a drug kingpin? They vetoed him immediately. Cranston was a comedic actor. So Gilligan dipped into the X-Files archives. He found the tape of Cranston's infamous episode, and sent it to the network decision-makers. And in no time, it was Malcolm in the meth lab. Next, they needed to cast Cranston's right-hand man, Jesse Pinkman. So they held an open casting call, and in walked a 27-year-old named Aaron Paul. Over his 10-year career, Paul had paid his rent by acting in commercials for brands like Coke and Pepsi. But as he got a little older, the commercial work started drying up. So he booked one-off roles in shows like CSI, ER, and The X-Files. When he walked into the Breaking Bad audition room, Gilligan didn't recognize him. But after a quick chat, he recalled Paul's X-File role. It was a nice icebreaker, and Paul launched into his audition. He performed a scene from the pilot episode, the one where Mr. White first approaches Pinkman about working together. But midway through, Paul forgot one of his lines, and he stopped the audition to apologize. He was nervous, but not just because he was in awe of the material. What Gilligan didn't know, what no one in the room knew, was that Paul was completely out of money. In 2006, Paul was in the lowest financial situation of his life. He had done six failed pilots that year, and there were no more prospects lined up. Everything was riding on this audition. After reading his lines, Paul left the room biting his nails, so Gilligan followed him into the hall. He gave him a little advice on the scene and invited him back in to try again. The second read went better. They told Paul they'd let him know. But he didn't hear back about the audition for two full weeks. It wasn't because they had so many other great auditions. It was because none of the executives wanted Paul. They thought he was too old and too good-looking to play a character in such a precarious position in life. But over those two weeks, Gilligan dug his heels in. He insisted Aaron Paul was their guy. They still weren't so sure. So Gilligan pulled out the ultimate showrunner trump card. He said, I'm not doing the show unless he's Jesse Pinkman. And that was that. Paul later said, thank God. In March of 2007, they shot the pilot in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They brought DEA consultants on board to teach the cast how crystal meth was made, and the props department started dyeing rock candy baby blue. Gilligan was anxious. He said they'd probably get canceled by the sixth episode, but he would give it his very best shot. AMC's PR team braced for backlash, prepping anti-drug PSAs during commercial breaks. The pilot was set to air after the 2008 NFC Championship between the New York Giants and the Green Bay Packers, an extremely coveted time slot. Except the game went 15 minutes into overtime, meaning any sports fan who flipped over to AMC after the game missed the show's opening entirely. They managed to bring in 1.4 million viewers, but it wouldn't be their last hurdle. Early season ratings were far from strong. Then the 2007-2008 writer strike hit smack dab in the middle of the first season, cutting it down from its intended 13 episodes to just seven. But somehow those seven episodes proved to be just enough. That year, Brian Cranston took home the Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Drama, and AMC's president said, now we're a network. Over the next 62 episodes, viewership grew steadily, eventually landing the series on Netflix, where its audience virtually quadrupled, and its season finale reached a viewership of 10 million. And by the way... 62 isn't just an arbitrary number. The 62nd element on the periodic table is samarium, which is used to treat lung cancer. Gilligan says there's no good reason Breaking Bad ever made it to the air. But the series four studios rejected, airing on a movie channel starring actors nobody wanted about a middle-aged chemistry teacher dying of cancer who cooks crystal meth out of an RV with a student he once flunked, made its way into the Guinness Book of World Records as the highest rated television series of all time.
1: There's one elusive element in overcoming rejection that is rarely discussed and that is the element of luck luck is like a bar of soap it's slippery it's out of your hands no one likes to bet their future on luck yet every single successful career is polished by luck Vince Gilligan was lucky his agent insisted he meet with the X-Files creator even though Gilligan was not interested in television. But that meeting led to a great job, where Gilligan learned how to write, how to produce, and how to run a TV show. Gilligan was lucky he met AMC just when it was looking to shift into the world of original content. Ryan Cranston was lucky Malcolm in the Middle wasn't picked up for an eighth season, or else he wouldn't have been available for Breaking Bad. Aaron Paul was lucky Vince Gilligan fought for him when AMC didn't want him. Gilligan was lucky the Hollywood writer's strike happened because he was just about to kill off Aaron Paul's character in season one. And what a loss that would have been. Passion, persistence, and talent is crucial. But you also need a sprinkling of luck. AMC was lucky FX was willing to sell the rights to the pilot script. Brian Cranston was lucky Vince Gilligan remembered him from his stint on The X-Files, saving him from years of being typecast as a goofy dad. Aaron Paul was down to his last dollar when he walked into the casting room, then blew his audition, but was lucky that Vince Gilligan chased him down the hall and brought him back. And lucky for us they all found each other. Director Sidney Lumet once said, there is a reason why luck doesn't always happen to everybody. Because they don't know how to prepare the groundwork for luck. When you learn, when you practice, when you train, when you study, when you fall down, when you get back up, when you burn the midnight oil... You are preparing the groundwork for luck. Then one day, luck crushes rejection. Never ever give up.
2: Breaking Bad Emmy Awards 16 Emmy nominations, 58. Golden Globe Awards, 2. Rolling Stone magazine 100 greatest television shows of all time, number 3. I'm not in danger Skylar. I am the danger.
3: The Rejection Podcast is an Apostrophe Podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophe pod. If you like this episode, we bet you'll probably also enjoy Rejecting Stranger Things from Season 1. We regret to inform you, this series is executive produced by one Terry O'Reilly. See you next time.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods